On this episode of True Sex in Wild Love, we sit down with Bethany Saltman. She's the author of Strain Situation, and she talks to us all about intimacy, fear, connection, and that big A word, attachment. What is your attachment history? What is your pattern? Can it shift? Also, how can your first relationship, your mother and your father relationship, really affect your intimate relationships? She dives all into this. I found this episode to be incredibly interesting, and I think you guys will too. If y'all enjoy enjoy it, please leave us a review on iTunes or let us know on social media. I love seeing and hearing from you guys. Much love. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of True Sex and Wild Love. Whitney Miller cannot be here today, but she will be back. Meanwhile, I am speaking to my friend, and one of my favorite writers, Bethany Saltman, today. She's the author of a book called Strange Situation, which you can get now. And I'm going to let her tell you what this book is about. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Hi, Bethany, Wednesday. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so my book, Strange Situation, is um, so titled because of a, um, a laboratory procedure by that same name created by the developmental psychologist, Mary Ainsworth. It is a 20 minute procedure that a, uh, a parent and a, and a baby go through as it's a series of comings and goings, reunions and separations. And Mary Ainsworth's work discovered that by putting um, a baby and their caregiver in this strange situation for 20 minutes, we can learn an awful lot about the way that child has come to be oriented toward love, toward danger, toward stress, and toward relief. And so um, it's a pretty incredible story. And she is one of my favorite people in the world. She is no longer with us, but she is deep in my heart. Well, I can't wait to get a little bit more into Mary Ainsworth because she was yes. truly a <laughs> badass. Um, and before we, get, and I love that you were drawn to her. Before we get more into who Mary Ainsworth was, can you tell us exactly what the strange situation would look like? How did the um, people doing the experiment, the developmental psychologist, actually run it? So, just take us through the steps. A mom sure. or dad, usually a mom probably, would come into yeah. the room with the child okay, so, of what age? Um, a tiny bit of backstory. Um, the strange situation came out of a um, a multi-year longitudinal study that Mary Ainsworth was doing in Baltimore um, in the 50s that was, um, actually it was in the... It, well, she was in Uganda in the 50s, and then and she did one experiment, one, one study, and then she came to Baltimore and replicated it. And so this, um, her studies began in the 50s and then moved through the 60s. And so what she was doing was she was studying mothers and babies in their home, first in Uganda, then in Baltimore. And by the end of that first year of her Baltimore study, she realized that she needed to know a little bit more about the way the American babies reacted to stress because in Uganda, the babies were all very stressed simply by her presence. Those babies weren't as used mm -hmm. to um, having mm -hmm. you know, other people around. They had never seen a white person. Um, so, so she was able to see them react to stress and use their mothers as a secure base. 
in in the United States in Baltimore, so much of what these babies and their mothers did was the same as in Uganda. But it was um, the one thing that was really different was that they weren't using their mothers as a secure base as much. And so she thought, well, maybe they're just not stressed enough. So let me take them into the laboratory and stress them out just a little bit to see to watch their attachment system come online so that I can observe it. And so that's what she did. So the way that that works is that. The mother and the baby, and at that time it was all mothers. Um, now the strange situation has been done with fathers and all kinds of caregivers. Um, and so the um, the mother and the baby would go to the lab. And this was a mother and a baby that she had already known quite well by studying them in the home. And she um, she set up this, this very strange scenario where there was a room with um, two chairs and some toys. The mother and the child would come in and and the baby would start playing with the toys or not playing with the toys. But by just by coming in, the observers would start to notice what kind of a baby is this? What is the temperament of this baby? Are they really exploratory? Are they somewhat pensive? What kind of a person are we talking about? And we get to see the mother. What kind of a relationship do they seem to have under basically normal circumstances, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and then a stranger Mm -hmm. would come in very shortly after, you know, maybe three minutes. And then we could see how that baby responds to a stranger with particular interest, with shyness. Um, and do they start to circle around the mother at that point? So a teeny bit of stress, something new, unique comes in and we can see how the baby responds. Um, and then after, um, that episode, the mother then leaves the room and leaves the child with the, um, with the stranger. And so we can see, does, uh, what does the child do under these circumstances of being left? And, um, is the stranger enough to sort of soothe the child? And from an attachment perspective, the answer we hope is no, we don't want the child to be able to be soothed by the stranger because the idea of an attachment relationship is that it's what's called differential. Like it's very special. The, the, the caregiver should be able to do to work at special magic and a stranger shouldn't be able to do the trick. Everybody shouldn't be Everybody equally, shouldn't be equally um, um, comforting. Exactly. Comforting. Exactly. Which is a really interesting point, which kind of goes against our Western idea of independent babies. You know, we don't want necessarily babies who are terrified, but when you're one year old, it's really legitimate to be afraid when you're left alone with a stranger because you, you know, from an attachment point of view, you want to have had a strong um, relationship with that caregiver. So, so then the, so then the mother returns with the stranger and the baby. And so that's the first reunion. And we can see at that point, okay, what is the baby going to do with this mild stress um, with the mother? Is the baby going to go to the mother and, and feel much calmer? Is the baby going to go to the mother and then retreat? Is the baby going to avoid the mother altogether and, um, you know, just sort of take care of him or herself at that? Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, keep going. I, I love the way you're setting up the experiment. So we understand okay. exactly what was um, happening. So then the stranger kind of scoots out and the baby and the mother are back together. And so we can see how, um, how the relationship is going to continue. Is the baby going to get back to playing? Is the baby um, still agitated? What kind of regulation is the baby? How how is the baby regulating him or herself using the mother in this context? And then the, yeah. 
And so there were different yeah. ways that the babies responded. And this is going to be very relevant um, to our listeners because later in life, the way you would have responded to this situation in a baby will be inflecting a lot the way you have That's other exactly. relationships. Um, right? This is the amazing thing about your book and yeah. about Mary Ainsworth's work. So what were the different ways that the babies could respond? You, I mean, there there right. are so many babies, right. there are so many responses, but how did the researchers categorize the different responses that a baby could have when reunited during the strange situation with their primary uh, Well, there caregiver. are three primary ways. Um, and the way that uh, Mary Ainsworth and her legacy, the way they talk about it is through A, B, and C. And um, A babies are considered avoidant. Uh, B babies are considered secure. And C babies are considered resistant or ambivalent. So um, there's there a grading, is a grading system. system. <laughs> and, and between, you know, and then after those three, there, is, uh, there are a whole lot of subcategories as well, because, you know, tens of thousands of babies have been studied under the strange situation at this point from around the world and every kind of family you can imagine and every kind of person. So, you know, it's not just about neurotypical children with their biological caregiver. There are, you know, all kinds of human beings have been studied using this tool. And it's not officially an experiment. There aren't two conditions being studied to see which one functions under which condition. Exactly. Not a exactly. It's really just an, it's a, it's a research tool to see how this one really, really important aspect of the human body, the human behavioral system functions. Does the, can a child use its mother or primary caregiver as a secure base to have some kind of self-regulation in times of stress. So the really fascinating thing about this is that babies had all these different ways of responding to stress. Um, Hold on one second, Bethany, I'm sorry. Okay, we're back again. So the really interesting thing here is that babies had so many different ways of responding to this stressor. But to me, the other, which tells us a lot about their personalities as babies or their um, attachment patterns, as we like to say. Um, But it also provides clues about who they may well be in later life, doesn't it? So can you talk a little bit about how, and I don't know, do we call it attachment uh, science? we can talk. Um, Okay. And, and you don't use the term attachment style. I think you talk about attachment pattern in your book, right? Okay. Can you talk about how one's attachment pattern as a baby, you know, what happens when we grow up and we start having romantic and sexual relationships and relationships with friends and how, how does this initial relationship with the parent or caregiver Mm -hmm. unspool over time? What are the data about that? And what did Mary Ainsworth um, find? Well, she really was focused on the child-caregiver um, relationship. But by the end of her life in 1999, there was a lot of other research developing. But it took many, many years to just even begin to establish this basic premise that what happens between a caregiver and a parent in the first year of life matters. And it, and it functions in these three specific ways. So she didn't get a lot in, uh, she didn't get too much into that, but many, many, many people have since. 
And so I think it's really important. You know, there've been like 40 year longitudinal studies of babies from the strange situation to adulthood. Um, it's, it's an incredibly rich and nuanced field, as you can imagine. It's, you know, about human beings. Um, and I think that one of the really important things to say at the outset is that, um, you know, and, and you asked about Buddhism too, and I know you are a Buddhist practitioner as well. Um, one of yeah. the really important things to remember is that this is not about destiny or any kind of, um, you know, that's all she wrote kind of thing. It's not like by the time a child is one and they're an ABC baby, um, their destiny is written, not at all. With that said, as Buddhist practitioners, we know and we see in our own lives and in our minds how powerful karma is, karma in the sense of cause and effect. So by the time a baby is one, there has been so much that has occurred within that child's physiological system that there's a kind of orientation that serves as a blueprint and, and it will change. It can change, but it, it becomes stronger and stronger the longer we're alive. But it doesn't mean it can't change. So I really want to make sure. I, that. That's a great, that's a great point. That's a great point about how it, it, and it can will. indeed change. And, it, and, it, and that it's not, you know, it's not no. written in stone, right? We can, uh, we can grow. Um, but, but, but I have a question yeah. about for you, for our, and especially, you know, for our listeners who want sure. to apply this to our lives, what would say an anxious attachment right. pattern look like if we hadn't sure. worked on it yet? If we hadn't done our Buddhism, our psychotherapy, our introspective yeah. work and journaling that so many of our listeners like to do, what would an, an anxious attachment pattern look like a secure one as an, and an avoidant sure. one? Can you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I always return to the strange situation, to the babies in the strange situation. I've watched many, many, many of them in videotape recording and live. And, um, you know, we're adults. And so we do things differently. We're a little bit more complicated, but you know, in a lot of ways we're not. So I like to answer that question by talking about what babies do in the strange situation. And then it's pretty easy to extrapolate a and, and the most important thing that does, in my opinion, what I'm most interested in, I should say, in the attachment literature, because it's enormous, is the way that our attachment regulates our emotions. Ooh, yeah. I love that point. Like your attachment pattern is basically this thing that helps determine in a way how you can deal yep. with stress or stress later. In and life. it's not just stress, it's sensation. Oh, everything. everything. Okay, say more. <laughs> no, please up. don't do that. I would be so lonely over <laughs> here in my house. Um, and so, so, so the secure baby in the strange situation, they, depending on their temperament, when the child, when the mother leaves and they are alone, in, in the, in the strange situation, they, if they're a really, you know, activated kind of person, they may howl, scream, cry. I mean, it's so sad to watch some of these babies, you know, they're like so distraught. Oh. And then the mother comes in and it's gone. You know, they run to the mom, they get picked up. The mom gives them a little pat, pat, pat. And it doesn't have to be this big, super expressive, you know, show of emotion. Not everybody's like that. 
but the relationship works. And so the baby's like, oh, phew. Okay. Back to playing because everybody, every human being's job is to be creative, to learn, to explore, to, um, you know, to create and to play. That's what we're here to do. And the baby's job is to figure out if they can, you know, get the blocks in the sorter and, you know, what the doll's going to do next. And that's their work. And when they're, when they're, you know, we're, so, so a secure baby is playing when they're in the mother's presence, they freak out maybe, or they're, they're just sad or listless, you know, depending on their personality. And then when the mother returns, they're like relieved and they get back to their business of playing. Okay. So okay. This is so interesting. I remember when my kids were in nursery school and my big one, especially I was a first time mom and he would, I would drop him off at nursery school and, you know, he would be a little sad to see me go. And then he would just kind of fall in with the Mm -hmm. other kids and I could go. He was maybe three at the time. And then when I came back, I would see these kids having these ecstatic reunions Mm. with their moms. Mommy, you're back. And like running over and giving their mom a big hug. Okay, my kid, who's now 18. Just just a little side note. Wow. 18? 18? It is. Okay, because no, my the kid fact would that your kid is 18, there. that's what I'm freaking out about. That is crazy. Wow. I'm freaking out about that too. I'm freaking out that your kid is 14 it's, and my kid is uncle. 18. Anyway. So the yes. So these kids would have these dramatic reunions. And you know, the nursery school yeah. teachers would be watching. And I would feel like such a shitty mom because I would come in and my then three-year-old would be coloring oh. or doing whatever he was doing. And I would walk in and say, hi, Elliot. And he would look up and say, hi, mommy, just a minute. And then he would go back to coloring and and then he would finish his task and then come over and like give me a hug and we would go home. Yeah. Well, it made me feel really shitty because where was the drama, right? Yeah. But later at a parent teacher conference, one of the nursery school teachers said to me, I've been watching you. You seem to feel bad that Elliot doesn't like jump up and run over and do a big dramatic thing. And she said, just so you know, like that's Mm -hmm. Elliot's style and he's secure. He looks up, he knows you're Mm -hmm. not going to go away again. He knows you're back. He registers that you're back. He's able to stay a little bit engaged with what he's doing and finish his task. And then he can't wait to, you know, get out. What a lovely nursery school teacher. Yeah, I think she must have read the attachment literature, but I think that a lot of mothers um, feel so destabilized by their children's reactions to them sometimes, or we feel so so worried that something's wrong and something's broken. And I was so lucky um, to have her tell me that. I know that you write about, I want you to talk about what the um, avoidant, babies will do and what the um, anxious babies do. But I also then want you to talk about, you know, your own experience um, with thinking something, something about your motherhood chip was damaged or broken. Yeah. So, so the avoidant babies were the biggest surprise for Mary. She had been studying these kids in Baltimore um, very closely, 72 hours per family, just like watching you know, and that's pretty intense. (laughs) And so 
if you if you don't have a one year old, I can tell you that that's a lot. That of is a lot. And well, it wasn't watching the one year old; it was watching the mother and the one year old. Watching, yeah, watching the, the dyad. dyad, exactly. Oh my god, that's hardcore. Deep. So she knew who these people were, you know, to a large degree. And and when she saw them, watched them in the strange situation, she totally expected that most of them would behave the way that they did upon reunion. However, the avoidant kids really blew her mind. She, and that was an expression she loved to say. Um, I know she's <laughs> so amazing. So it, they blew her mind because at home, the avoidant babies were really fussy and kind of angry, pissy babies. And in the strange situation, when they were left alone, whether they cried or didn't cry under duress, when the mother came back, they didn't turn to her and and use her as a secure base. They weren't able to use the mother um, to come back to their own homeostasis, regardless of their personality or style, like, like that preschool teacher mentioned about Elliot. Um, and she didn't understand because at home, these kids were super reactive. And so she thought, well, maybe they're just not stressed mm. enough. Let me, she actually um, did another, she introduced the idea of a, a second separation <laughs> because she thought like, well, let me just keep trying. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and that deeper. didn't work either. And then she finally had this aha moment. These babies are pissed. They, they are active <sighs> at home. They're pissed off at home. They, they are, but they're comfortable at home so they can act out. But under duress, they're not going to act out. They're going to go inside. They're going to go internal. And they don't trust that they are going to get their needs met. Because every baby in the strange situation, and this has been tested, of course, um, is under stress. Their, their stress hormones go up. Their heart rate goes up. They're, they're, they're under stress. So it doesn't matter what they look like. What we're looking at is how do they use the parent to manage that stress? And the avoidant baby does not use the mother to manage their stress. They go inside, they're angry, and they they try to do it themselves. And of course, they cannot. A one-year-old cannot self-soothe. So as an adult... So we, yeah, we see the big difference there. Yeah, big, so we see adult, a very big difference. Ahead. And if we look at this in terms of regulation, because, you know... I, I guess I'm a little Spock-like in this way. I I, I like to think about um, you know the way that we when when we are experiencing love or loss or any of these big emotions, it's it's incredibly emotionally disruptive. It can be you know delightfully disruptive, but it it calls all of our attention. And how we manage that calling of attention is going to really have an impact on how, quote, functional we can be. You know, I mean, I had an experience of a very intense love relationship that threw me, and this I write about this in the book, that threw me so for a loop, I couldn't function anymore. It was, it was a toxic relationship. It was an abusive relationship. It was a very, very hot relationship. Um, it was sexy. It was, you know, I was, but I was, I was addicted to this person and to this experience. And I was no longer able to use myself as a secure base. My regulation was completely off. I couldn't, I couldn't manage. You became really dysregulated. I was totally dysregulated to the point of being suicidal. I couldn't deal. 
And what did this have to do with your attachment pattern and how could being aware of your attachment pattern help in a situation like that from our, our many listeners who find themselves in toxic yeah. relationships as a term that people use or just something that feels out of control and they, they don't exactly. feel in control anymore. Well, I think that I, I'm very grateful that, um, you know, I really came back from the brink of that experience by um, through Zen practice. Um, I, that's when I discovered Zen and I started meditating and it really brought me back to my own secure base of myself. Um, and I believe that I was, you know, the big hypothesis of my book and of my life is that I was able to do that. And a lot of other difficult work that I've done in my life, because I had a, I had a pretty rough childhood, but ultimately my parents really left me alone. And I'm grateful for that because I, I had enough security, enough feeling that, you know, my mother would be there for me in times of great stress that I could go deep into myself. So whenever I really struggled and boy, it was a lot of, you know, struggling mightily and still to this day, I mean, Lord knows. Um, but I, I trust myself Mm -hmm. on some deep, deep level and I am interested. I'm curious about my experience. I don't avoid it. Um, that, so the avoidant baby, the avoidant adult is so dysregulated by the sensation, by the feeling, the experience of being in love, of being not in love, of being angry, of being, you know, of someone rejecting them. It's just, there's so much fear around one's own feeling. You know, we say, I'm afraid this person's going to hurt me. And yes, for sure. But the step before that is that I'm afraid that I can't handle the experience of feeling hurt. Like this baby in a strange situation, I can't turn toward this person because I can't tolerate my own feeling of being rejected. Like I'm going to go toward my mom and my mom is not going to be able to give me what I want. And so I'm going to avoid it. So scary. So So sad. And sad, really sad. And so, but if somebody had that early experience, you're saying, among Mm. other things, um, Buddhism, meditation, mindfulness. One of the great things about your book is that um, you show how meditation for Mm -hmm. you has been medicine and has changed you quite a bit. And I think that is also um, so, so relevant for people who might Mm -hmm. have an anxious attachment history. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the, the resistant or ambivalent baby in the strange situation is, you know, received inconsistent care. And so in the moment of stress of being left alone, again, whether they are a big feeler or not so big feeler, um, they're under stress, but when the parent returns, they may sort of go toward the parent and then retreat. They climb up on the parent and then want down. They they get up in her arms or his arms and then beat her, you know? Um, so there's a lot of ambivalence because they have received inconsistent care. And I just want to say that, you know, I say things like they've received inconsistent care or the mother wasn't able to give the baby what they need. And I mean absolutely no judgment in that. You know, the, the karma, the karmic piece is so real that, um, you know, it's not like these people, these women are bad or, 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 you know, quote, bad moms, but we give what we have. We can only do 
what we know. And so, you know, I just want to make sure that there's no sense that I'm suggesting that, you know, people are somehow like broken and everybody. And so to answer your question of, you know, how did, how can Buddhism or, or anything help us wherever we find ourselves? Um, we're, it's always available. We can always, always, always become more aware of ourselves and become a little more secure in our own experience of ourselves. And that's what babies need. That's what we need. That's what we all need. And that's always available. I remember, um, as a mom, nothing ever helped me mother better or feel better about mothering. I would have these moments where I would yell, I would lose my shit. I was so tired all the time. Um, I would want to cuddle my kids, but you know, I was trying to write a book or, um, you know, things were just out of control all the time. And I was a yeller really? and I, I tried, yeah. And I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was bad. And so, um, you know, I started looking for resources to help me and I went to psychotherapy. I have been yeah. doing that for a long time. And, um, my shrink is actually a Buddhist sex researcher. (laughs) Yes. And she gave me this book called Buddhism for Mothers. And I just thought, oh, for God's sake, like one more thing that's not going to work. And I remember like locking myself Uh, in my bathroom, you know, to, to read it. And I started to read it and it was really Uh life altering because the message was, what's happening right now in parenting in the present moment. You're safe. Your kid is okay. Stop running scenarios. Stop being mad about how you fucked up yesterday. Just be in the present moment with your child. And the interesting thing was that, um, sorry. Um, the interesting thing was that that changed not just my relationship to my husband, but my relationship to other people. I mean, I meant meant to say not just my relationship with my kids, but it also changed my relationship Mm -hmm. to my husband Mm -hmm. and to the world. Um, And so I love the way Strange Situation weaves together these different pieces, motherhood, Buddhism, feeling like you're broken, romantic relationships, sex, attachment patterns. It, you know, it's like you have blended these things that we don't normally think go together. But when you see them, you say, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. Buddhism is a way to self-regulate Hell yeah. and other things. It really is. And, um, you know, it's, there's more to it, but the, but I have found that the deeper I go into the attachment literature, the more the whole thing opens up. It's really, you know, it's not a theory of everything, but it's definitely, attachment, I mean, is not a theory of everything, but it is a very, very deep investigation of a certain channel of human experience that is part of everything. It's not the whole picture. Of course, there are other aspects of what we do, but it's so deep and it's so intrinsic to who we are, like the Dharma, like Buddhism. You know, it just reminds me that people will probably want to read your piece that ran Mm. in New York Magazine 
and it went it went crazily viral. And was it called can attachment explain theory all, explain, explain all of our world? relationships? Yeah. I love it. So anybody who's not quite ready to commit to reading a whole book yet can read that article in New York magazine. Yeah, it's still absolutely. online. And it's a, it's a really good way for people to get right. to know your ideas. Um, but it's also a great way for people to wrap their minds around just how relevant attachment theory is to everything we're doing every day, including how we're responding right now to this really strange Word. situation. Yeah, absolutely. What, yeah. What can, atta- how can, how can attachment theory help us understand ourselves in this present moment of a COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic and how can being aware of our attachment patterns mm-hmm. get us through this? Um, well, to me, being aware is how we get through everything. And so, you know, like the book that you read in the bathroom, I love that image, you know, how much, how many lives have been saved in a bathroom, you know? How many mothers have pulled their shit together? (laughs) Shitting. So intense. Um, So, you know, awareness is, and this is where Buddhism and where attachment and detachment meet. Um, Awareness is the great elixir, you know? Um, And so, and we really are in a strange situation right now. We are in this kind of contrived experience of being with our children and the comings and goings, it may not be physical. You know, there's no, (laughs) there's no door that we can leave and leave our kids alone right now, but they are certainly emotional and psychological. We're leaving all the time. Right. I mean, we are definitely not wanting to be present with this whole experience. And of course, nobody can be expected to be present all the time. But to be aware of our comings and our goings, our internal comings and goings, and what triggers us, you know, that word is used a lot. Um, But, you know, Mm -hmm. I would just say, how does it feel? And, you know, you had mentioned that um, being aware, being present with your kid got you through a lot of that. I would make it even simpler and just say, be present with yourself. And and when we're in this Mm -hmm. very strange situation, and it is stressful as hell, And we're probably going to, you know, our attachment systems are very much online because there's danger. There is. Our attachment systems are very much online right now because there's danger. That's such a great reframing of what we're going through. Yeah. So we, um, and, you know, my husband is a psychotherapist and we have a 14 year old. So he, and he's working with a lot of families and we're seeing it in our daughter as well. A kind of lovely regression. And I've seen this on social media also of kids and families, you know, Azalea's brought her Barbies back out. She's, um, you know, she's a very like imaginative play kind of kid. One of those only children anyway. Um, but (laughs) kids are really happy. And I've, I've talked to so many people and, you know, we're like drinking too much and freaking out and we're like, well, how are your kids? And they're like, they're great. (laughs) They're happier than a pig in shit. Yeah, same with my 12-year-old. He's yeah, well, so the 18-year-olds are going to be, yes. And, and the older they get, the more they want to be with their girlfriends and whatever. Um, but Azalea mm-hmm. is 14. And, and the people that we know who are of that age and younger, 
Um, there's a sweet spot. I'm not going to lie. I mean, the people with the little kids, they're, mm-hmm. the kids are happy, but it's difficult to keep kids, you know, little kids who need a lot of exercise and all that. Oh my God. Oh if my you God. have a toddler right about now, you're yeah, losing your shit. <laughs> but the reason why a lot of these kids are so happy is because their attachment systems are online. They're, they're kind of scared. Like what the hell is going on? Um, and they have their parents all the time. All day, every day. So they're like, let me just, I'm just, I'm getting um, upset and rattled and riled. My attachment system is getting rattled and riled, but I'm Well, I'm not self-soothing. I'm using my parents to soothe me. And I'm, right. So so that's the reason so many um, kids who aren't quite full-blown, full-throttle teenagers yet seem to be doing well and yet regressing I think so. at the same well, I, When I say regressing, I mean in a happy way because I, uh, I am of the opinion that kids, quote, grow up too fast and there's like way too much sophisticated emotional content that kids are trying to um, right. process. So I'm not a fan of that. So to me, it's a happy regression. Yeah. It's a regression from a fucked up place. And- and I see it and people are writing about it and talking about it. Now for our listeners yeah. who don't have kids, their attachment of systems course. are getting riled too. I get hundreds of DMs because, and so does Whitney, you know, because I write about sex and relationships and Whitney is a relationship uh-huh. coach. And most men, not most, many of our listeners are interested in kind of what we might call alternative uh, relationship sure. envelopes, mm-hmm. right? Or styles. And so I hear from people, I hear a whole range of things. The one thing I hear consistently is that people who are staying at home and don't have a partner or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a person that they um, have sex and a romantic attachment to are saying, I miss mm-hmm. touch so much. And so I, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, your training, what you study, your Buddhism, what you know about attachment Mm -hmm. patterns and how you might have words for those people. And, you know, the other thing I want to say is that, wow, sex is not stopping though, thanks Mm. to technology. I mean, I'm also hearing from, from scores of people (laughs) telling me that they're still on Tinder, they're still on Bumble, they're still here, they're still there. And I was wondering like, well, what are they doing? They can't hook up or go out on dates. But, you know, of course they're having sex yeah. virtually, right? With the help of, with the help of screens, um, yeah. they're having phone sex, um, FaceTime sex, whatever, WhatsApp sex, whatever. So all this continues right. to go on. So what, what can you tell people about their attachment patterns as it relates to their sexuality yeah. in this yeah, moment yeah, yeah. and in general? Well, one of the things to, um, that I'd like to think about or that helps me is to think about these their behavioral systems. So attachment is one, caregiving is one, affiliation is one, which is interesting in light of your first book, your uh, Primates yeah. of Park Avenue, that yeah. whole affiliative thing. And mm-hmm. sexuality, yeah. of course, is is a whole system. And the way these systems work is that they 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 ha- their goal they're set they're called set goal behavioral systems. They have a goal. So and the attachment goal is to feel felt, to feel seen, to feel secure. When when that doesn't happen, we keep searching 
for that feeling of security. And we will not stop until we get there. And it's only, it's up to us to say, because it's a felt sense. It's a thing that only we get to say when we feel satisfied. The same goes for sexuality. So, you know, as we all know, when we've got it going on, nothing is going to stop us (laughs) until it's satisfied. It being whatever it is that excites you and gets your, your sexuality system riled up. So whether we're in, you know, regular days or insane days like this, I think that, um, I, you know, I feel so sad for people who are not able to be touched. That's, you know, just a terrible, a terrible loss. And that's so true in any situation. There's so many people who don't get to be touched in the way that they want to be touched. And in this scenario, um, you know, I think that having compassion for ourselves is really, really the best medicine. And that we can, you know, these needs are a little, and this is me just sort of talking. I'm not, you know, I'm not citing any research here, but in my life, in my experience, these systems can sort of overlap. And, you know, like Mary Ainsworth became really excited about her work through the process of psychoanalysis. I became really excited about Buddhism by hitting some of the walls in my sexuality. I became um, really interested in attachment vis-a-vis spirituality. We can, you know, if our sexuality system is, for whatever reason, not able to reach its set goal, and we, you know, it's called sublimating, right? And it's like a super basic, and it can be really right. harmful and toxic, certainly, but not when we have awareness. So if we can, you know, say, wow, I'm not able to get what I need right now or what I want right now, and I'm, and get in touch with that striving sensation, which is so natural, legitimate, nothing wrong with it. Um, And to say, okay, what can I, what feels satisfying? You know, this is where people maybe eat a lot or drink a lot or connect Mm -hmm. with friends or, you know, whatever. But to honor that these behavioral, these set goal behavioral systems are with us for a reason and to um, honor them and try to um, see how, you know, how can I feel felt in some other arena where this isn't possible right now because of COVID or because I'm lonely, um, we can satisfy ourselves in so many ways. And then of course there's, you know, this isn't even talking about just masturbation and being alone and, you know, being sexual in those creative ways. I'm not, you know, that's your territory more. So that's, that's a given that that's (laughs) possible. But yeah, people are seeking this and you know, seeking it more than ever now that seeking we can't what? have it and right. seeking exactly. connection. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think about how that goes back to our littlest selves. And one of one way that somebody explained attachment to me before and attachment ruptures was if you're a child, all you need is to have one person that you're with consistently who every time you walk in the room, they get a gleam mm-hmm. in their eye that tells you, you are enough, you are perfect, right? Just by being, just by walking into this room, I get a gleam in my eye because I think you are so fantastic. That's what I see when I look at you. And uh, this person explained to me that, you know, so many of us didn't have that and go through life seeking it. And if you're one of those people, you're not 
broken, if you're listening, you know, I think Bethany's message to you among other messages is you're not broken. It makes sense that you're seeking what you're seeking and just be aware and if, if you're, you know, Bethany, we hear from so many people, Whitney and I, one of, one of the things I hear all the time, cause we live in the age of tech is she's not texting me back oh, and I'm losing God. my mind, right. Or he's not texting me back and oh, I'm God. losing my mind and what should I do? And I don't know what to do. And blah, blah, blah. what, what can, tell me what your research about attachment patterns oh, and Mary God. Ainsworth, what, what can we say to people in that dilemma whether it's during yeah. this pandemic or not, the the crisis, the way people experience it as a real crisis, the people I hear from, that somebody doesn't text them back, peel back the layers. Oh it is a crisis. There? It's a total fucking crisis. It's so painful. I mean, being <laughs> ghosted is just brutal. It's the hardest thing in the world, whether it's real or imagined. It's the experience, you know? The experience of being ghosted. So tell me how people with different attachment patterns in history might respond to somebody oh. not texting them back, feeling ghosted or being ghosted. Because oh, being ghosted Cruel. is, and, and, or even just oh, being God. dumped, yeah. right? How, how can our, how do our attachment patterns help us or hinder us, um, Well, I wanted to just go back a couple beats because you were mentioning this gleam in the eye thing. And Mary Ainsworth had a word for that. She called it delight. And for her, it's a technical term. We have to feel some delight. But again, it's in our own bodies. That's what I was saying about these sort of overlapping um, uh, set goal behavioral systems. It's a sort of annoying phrase for the things that make us tick. And we have to feel it on the inside in order for someone else to experience it. So a kid whose parent doesn't delight in them isn't a bad person. They don't delight in themselves. They don't delight. There isn't delight there. That's why they don't feel it for the kid. Mm -hmm. So, um, or, or they don't feel it enough or, you know, they don't think that it's important or there are all kinds of reasons why we can't express delight, but that's a sad day, right? So, so going to the question of this ghosting, I um, I happen to have been working with this with someone who lives in my house, who is a young teenager, <laughs> who, um, who mm. thought she was being ghosted by a good friend. And um, I, you know, of course, have enough of a vision of what's going on in, in these relationships to have this strong feeling that this, this was not the case, but, you know, it was during the pandemic. Mm. It was, you know, people are really, we need each other and, and we can't beat ourselves up for that. It's really, really important to not. Oh, we're so pro-social. We're so affiliated. We We need need it so badly. And so to be kind to ourselves. And so she was, you know, someone wasn't responding to her as quickly as she usually did. This was just a, a good, like one of her best friends. And she got really, really mm-hmm. insecure and worried that um, she was being ghosted. And oh my God, what does this mean? And what, what, you know, how, how is this possible? And it was, it was devastating. And um, and so she got through it. The the friend responded, and then um, you know it's like, phew, like I, I dodged that bullet, you know. And then a couple of days later, I was with her, and she and a friend of hers asked, "Do you want to FaceTime?" Because that's what the kids are doing now. The kids. They're just like on FaceTime all day long, right. even during school or doing whatever else they're doing. 
Yeah, they're yeah. always facing And they're doing, going about other. their business, but just in the presence of another, which I think is beautiful. They're so it's, smart. It's so smart and so beautiful. But so she was like eating lunch or doing whatever. And a friend of hers asked her if she wanted to FaceTime. And she said, and she said out loud to me, I'm not going to respond because I'm like busy right now and I, I don't want to talk right now. And I said, okay, you know, it was a casual conversation, whatever. And then later I said, you know, right. what you did with that friend is probably what happened with the person you thought was ghosting you. Now think about yourself in that moment. You didn't feel like, oh, I don't, I'm mad at her. I don't love her. I don't want to be friends with her, but I am taking care of me right now. And it's really not personal to this friend. And she said, oh my God, mm. you're right. And it, and she really was mm-hmm. able that, and we talked about it later and I asked her how the other relationship thing was going. And she reported back to me that that, that little bit of mind sight really helped her. And I mean, yeah. she's 14. Think about, think about how much your book and being aware of your attachment patterns and being in the present moment can help exactly. you know, the rest of us grownups. I mean, Thinking about, I'm so glad that you, you know, and it's so cool the way you parent through Buddhism, Bethany, because I feel like, um, have knowing you and Azalea a little bit, I know her not as well as I know you, but I have seen you in action with her. And that is such a beautiful moment because you let her come to that revelation herself, which is sort of what Buddhism is about. It's an experience. You have to experience it. Yeah. You let her experience her own emotion and give right. it a name. And some mindset. Right. So, so when and, people are, yeah. and I really have so much sympathy for people who are getting frantic because people aren't ghosting. I mean, people aren't texting them back and, and we're really in, mm-hmm. we have so much need right now. You know, we're, we're scared. Our attachment systems are riled up. We are alone. We don't know when this thing is going to end. So it's, we don't have an easy way to comfort ourselves. And, um, and so what happened with Azalea was she was able to have some mindset about her own feeling, which helped her understand how other people might be feeling. Now, if someone really is dumping you and ghosting you, that is very painful. And the best way, regardless of your attachment system or your attachment pattern or style or whatever it is, what you need is comfort in that and to be patient with yourself and to find ways and people find ways to feel settled to get, to get through that painful experience. When I was in this toxic relationship that I, um, I, I don't know if I ever could have left this person. So I'm glad that he dumped me, um, because I was so stuck Mm -hmm. and I actually ended up counting days like they do in 12 step programs. Um, and just had to, because that was, and it really, it, brought me to life. I'm so grateful that I went through that experience because I was really honoring the pain, the, the abject pain of being rejected by someone who I thought I couldn't live without. Oh, that's so oh, deep. That's right? so oh, my deep. God. It doesn't, so, no. it doesn't go away. And then, and then I, I wanted to say that something that Buddhism has done for me is Say you're a person who is in that situation where you have been dumped or you have been ghosted. One of the lessons of Buddhism for me has been to 
I think it was Pema Chodron who wrote this. She says the predicament uh-huh. is workable. <laughs> and, you know, she, she also says one of the main tenets of Buddhism, which is the present moment is all we have and uh. it's the perfect teacher. But then when that one's not working for me, I go to the predicament is workable, which I guess, yeah. I mean, the predicament is workable can mean Well, it's so like Marie Forleo's everything is figure outable, right? Yes, exactly. Everything is figure outable. And one of the things that makes the predicament workable, whether it's the predicament of being zumped, right? My niece, Julia Moser, wrote, well, like had this viral tweet about how she got oh dumped. My God. Oh my God. <laughs> um, she was zumped. Um, there, or, so whether it's being zumped during COVID-19, whether it's just dealing with this pandemic, whether that's the predicament, which is a pretty huge predicament, or whether it's that somebody ghosted you or you, somebody didn't return your text, or whether it's just the predicament of not knowing what will happen uh-huh. with the relationship. For me, this idea that the predicament is workable means two things. It means, okay, how am uh-huh. I doing right now? I feel like my heart, I say this to people who tell me my heart is shattered in a million pieces. And I say, you're telling me that and I honor that. But how are you right now? Are you whole? Touch your body. You are. You are literally whole right now. You're hurting, but you're whole. So to me, the predicament is workable means being in the present Mm -hmm. moment with that pain. But it also means you can spring off from the predicament and do work. And this gets back to you being grateful to that person with whom you were in a toxic relationship that that person turned out to be one of your greatest teachers, right? I know my shrink who's, I said, she's a Buddhist psychoanalyst, sex researcher, always tells me you should be grateful to that person who like you spun off into insecurity or anger or whatever, you know, often it's like work related or about my spouse or my kids or a girlfriend or any friend or colleague and she'll say wow you're you're spinning off and you should be grateful to that person because they're giving you the opportunity as a teacher they're teaching you to ask and they're giving you the opportunity to say what exactly am i spinning off right Right. now about and you know in terms of the pandemic so much of our fear comes from not being in the present moment right i mean of course the present moment absolutely right. for sucks some right people now. more Let's than others that. for some yeah. people a yeah. lot more than others it's really yeah. really hard right now and on the other hand for many of us in the present moment we either were sick like i was sick and when i had covid-19 and i was having shortness of breath my attachment pattern probably was so online, as oh, you yeah. say, right? I really needed a lot of attention. I really needed a lot of texts from my friends. I needed to FaceTime my friends. I needed, you know, my husband, he could not be in my bedroom. I had I to be quarantined. Yeah, I was in my bedroom for oh 14 God. days. And then my symptoms resolved by day 15. And then you're supposed to, you know, stay in your room for another week or 72 hours, depending on how conservative you want to be um, after resolution of symptoms, right? During that period, I was going bananas from not being able to touch anybody. And I really, I needed to FaceTime with my friends. Like I said, I needed my husband to be FaceTiming me. I needed to FaceTime with my kids because it really felt like I might perish. Okay. On the, on the other hand, 
Buddhism helped me so much through that because I could ask myself in each minute, I have shortness of breath, but I am not going to the place about what if it gets worse. I know what if it gets worse. I text my doctor. I have inhalers. Um, I, you know, I do some of the things my doctor recommends. Buddhism stopped me from running a million scenarios about how things might work out and just stay with how I was right now. Yeah. I took a breath and it was enough rather than, right. So that to me is a lesson for me, you know, to take into the rest of my life, but without Buddhism, oh my God, I would have been catastrophizing so (laughs) So hard. Oh my God. Um, I would have been catastrophizing so hard. I probably would have had even more short. Well, that's, I mean, we laugh, but that's actually completely true. You know, asthma is actually very much related to anxiety. And so what you did was actually take care of yourself. Yeah. And let me say about that asthma anxiety nexus, um, because you're so right about that. But also asthma is very real, right? And yeah, and we know that yeah, and we know that it particularly impacts people who live where there's a lot of air pollution or you know, in New York we know that, you know, kids who are underprivileged have asthma at you know, astronomical rates and so on, but it's still worth things for many of us. It's still worth looking at that nexus between anxiety and what our body's doing for sure. And Buddhism can help so much with that. And I was just thinking, you know, in terms of drawing a lesson, um, for relationships, you know, so much of what people do when somebody doesn't text them back is they catastrophize. Or when they're at the beginning of a relationship and they're saying it could go this way, it could go that way, which way is it going to go? I mean, running scenarios is a form of control. Well, it's a form of control. It's a form of magical thinking control. Right. Like if I worry enough about this or fantasize enough about this, I can control the outcome. Totally. I mean, my husband asks me all the time, (laughs) what is it that you think you're accomplishing? He doesn't mean it in the snarky way, but it sounds snarky and it pisses me off. What do you, what do you think you're accomplishing (laughs) by, um, you know, running all these scenarios by, by trying to, um, you know, to trying to see 10 steps ahead by worrying basically by perseverating, what do you think you're accomplishing? And the answer is I am, I feel like I am trying to, I'm, I'm trying to control the unknown. Yeah. I mean, it's like the phobic flyer on the plane, right? Who's thinking in their head to everybody around them, you're welcome because if I stopped flipping out, the plane would definitely crash. It's magical thinking and we do it so much. And depending on our Mm -hmm. attachment pattern, we might be prone to doing that. Well, and it may be more or less um, workable. It may or it may not. So remember the attachment system, the attachment patterns are all about What's going to help us regulate? So maybe one of our strategies is to worry and perseverate. So if you're a securely attached, autonomous adult, you can do that a little bit and it might actually work. You can come down to homeostasis. You can be like, okay, I've done my, my perseverating for the hour. Now let me get back to work. You know, (laughs) just give me this. Yeah. And we have to do that for ourselves. So back to the people who are, you know, feeling so undone by these relationships and by this insecurity, 
Um, I, I just want them to feel, to be the friend and the parent to themselves that they are seeking in this other. Be the parent or the friend that you're seeking in the other. Get delight from yourself. Figure you're out saying. what is it that brings your own pleasures, you know? And yes, we need relationships. We need sexuality. We need all of that. Like it's, it's for sure. But when it's not possible and it's not happening or the other person doesn't want us, I mean, wow, then we really have no choice but to return to ourselves. And, and be, be your, your own, own delight. delight. And it's possible. And Buddhism will help us, I can us, do that, right? anybody can do that. I, I love... I love the way you're reframing so many things that we think are about other people and showing us how they're about ourselves. And not in some kind of narcissistic I add, way, you know, oh. that's how people really misread that. It's not, it isn't that it's, mm-hmm. it's actually the most compassionate thing you can do is to take care of your own shit. Yeah, please do. Right. Okay. I want to take us on a little bit of a swerve from what we've been talking about. I want to know more about Mary Ainsworth because you fell in love with her and anyone you fell in love with, I know so many people want to know about. Can you just tell us who was this woman and hey, what were her relationships? Oh God, that's a fun question. I wish I knew more. I mean, that was one of the carrots of this whole thing. Like maybe I'm going to you know who she is. I I mean, as much as we know who anybody is, right? She was, um, (laughs) she was born in 1913 to a, you know, pretty like normal family. Um, her husband, her, her father, interesting. I said, husband, she had, um, a sort of Oedipal (laughs) relationship with her father. So she said later, Um, her mother was kind of cold. Her father, she was, you know, they were, she was more connect. She felt like her father was warmer than her mother. Um, and she had three sisters, I believe two or three sisters. There's not a lot written about her. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm excited to have this book come out. And they were kind of an intellectual family. They would go to the library all the time. She was really into books. She learned to read at three. She was totally like one of those precocious kids. And, um, and she, she found this book when she was 15, that was about psychology and about, I wish I had a little bit, I could read to you right now. I should have this at the ready all the time, um, about like the the internal experience and how important it was to, for self-reflection and, um, and it blew her mind and she was like, okay, I want to be a psychologist. I want to learn about the internal, the world of the internal experience. And, um, and this was not what her family had in mind for her. Her father wanted her to go to school to become a stenographer. I know, right? Oh God. And so she did not do that. Her family had moved to, to Canada by that time. And she went to the university, university of Toronto at 16. And I mean, this is in, um, um, well, in the, so in the forties, so she went to college when she was sixteen, and then she had to leave and become part of the Canadian Army because of the war. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And sorry, remind me what. Or maybe that was when she was in. See, was in, we might want to fix this post production because I get really anxious about some of these. Okay. No problem. Don't worry. Okay. Don't worry. Just keep going. Just keep talking about Mary Ainsworth. We don't, we'll cut it all out. Uh, it's my attachment no, system. Worry. I get very like anxious. 
Don't worry. We're, we, we have okay. like eight more minutes because I'm keeping you over because oh, it's good, so good. good. Um, so Mary, <laughs> she went to college early. She, she started studying psychology and she just, you know, crushed it. Everybody that she, all of her teachers said that she, they want her to become, you know, like basically teach the class. And um, she became an expert in the Rorschach. She became an expert pretty much in everything that she did. And um, so then, and then she met this guy named Len Ainsworth. And he was a student in one of the classes that she was teaching. And she was about to become a professor in this department. And, um, and they got married. We don't know much about him. Um, they got married and instead of, she said that she didn't want to be in the quote, rather uncomfortable position of teaching in the program where her husband was a student. This was in the um, early Mm -hmm. 1950s. She left her position Mm -hmm. and went to England with him where he was finishing his degree. Got it. And in a way, like, oh, what a terrible thing for her career. But in Eng- is England yes. where so she met So that's where John she met John Bowlby. She didn't have a job. A friend of hers pointed out this job. It was a want ad for someone um, to be a research associate for um, John Bowlby's Tavistock Clinic. He was doing a bunch of work on maternal separation where he was developing his, um, his theory of attachment. So she went to work for him and started helping... Um, this one of her colleagues, John Robertson, who did some really important work on um, on qualitative qualitative research on attachment, and she loved his work. He was doing films, and and she thought this is interesting, but I don't really buy it. You know, this whole attachment thing is not really. I'm not sure what what he's talking about. I I still believe that children love their parents because they feed them. This was the prevailing behavior. Right. People thought babies were exactly. basically Robots. machines, like feed them. Feed them, soothe right, them, exactly. put them down. They didn't even mean soothe them really, right? They were just like these babies exactly. are food, food machines. machines. Sucking machines. And so she wasn't so sure about that, about his whole attachment thing. And then Len got, Len wanted to study in Uganda. And so she was like, fine, I'll go to Uganda. I have nothing lined up for myself. But in true Mary Ainsworth style, she managed to get a, a small grant and a translator to do a research project of, in Uganda. And she wanted to study these maternal separations. And she had heard, you know, the maternal separations that John Bowlby was beginning to study. And she had heard that mothers and babies um, separate during weaning. And she thought, oh, this will be a really juicy thing for me to study. It turns out that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. It was a rumor. And so she ended up just studying life between mothers and babies in Uganda. (laughs) And that was the exactly. start for her. And that's when she started to see this mutual delight. And that's when she started to see, oh, these people are in relationship. These are not, this is not a robotic kind of like give and receive. Babies no, are not, babies are not sucking machines. machines and mothers are not feeding machines. These people are in relationship and there are different kinds of relationships. Some of them seem really, really delightful. Others of them seem kind of fraught and and the babies don't seem that happy to be with their mothers. That's when she started to notice this secure-based behavior, largely because of her own presence. This white woman who was there in their house, she was the perfect foil. Because she was, was the strange, strange situation. situation. And, she, and she traveled with, with um, lollipops, and she always had like her pen, and she would like, give the babies you know, suckers all the time and watch them eat this candy. And she, she was just... 
she delighted in them so much and she delighted in these mothers and she developed real relationships with these people and she would drive them to and from the clinic when they were sick because that was what was um that's what these these uh that's what the mothers really needed you know help getting right yeah so like a good anthropologist she knew how to how to work it with her uh the people who who were in, exactly. giving her great information. You know, it's so interesting. Mary Ainsworth worked with Boldy, went to Uganda, did the work that she did after she was in Uganda in Baltimore. And yet John Boldy gets yes, all does. the credit for attachment theory. What well, the we know what the fuck. Hashtag patriarchy. It's like, <laughs> it's insane to me. And I, you know, I have talked to, I've been in rooms of, some of the most renowned attachment researchers in the world and ask for a show of hands of who has read infancy in Uganda, which is the, the pinnacle of, of qualitative attachment research and nobody has read it. You know, what you're doing is so important because you're telling us that we need, you're telling professionals that they need to rethink um, attachment through the lens of Mary Ainsworth, but you're telling, you're giving the rest of us um, a heroine. I mean, she was so, she was so important to contemporary psychology. Forget about attachment theory, right? I mean, her ideas yeah. Oh, tell us more about her. Um, so, so she, so she did this work in Uganda, which was so radical and so just you know kind of rough and tumble, but was so smart. She was developing these hypotheses and seeing this stuff just you know in the midst of her own very eyes with these these people that she didn't know anything about. She learned the language and like a month. I mean, she's just ridiculously smart. And so, um, and when she came back. And she and Len got a divorce because I think he, we don't totally know, but I believe that he was having multiple affairs. That's what I can glean. And she was devastated by the, mm. by the, uh, rupture. And, um, and she ended up mm. going into psychoanalysis, which was a real turning point for her as a person. That was sort of her version of when I became, um, interested in meditation she really said, okay, I, she had set out to become a psychologist, but she didn't quite know what it was like to study her own self. And when she started Ooh. to do that, that's when her work on attachment started to go gangbusters. She developed her own secure attachment. I mean, her own secure base with herself vis-a-vis psychoanalysis, which is super interesting. And so then she just sort of went balls to the wall doing this work as this um, woman you know, this single woman who was really, um, loved working with students was incredibly respectful. She would write down students ideas because she didn't want to ever inadvertently call it her own. I mean, imagine. So she was very Very respectful respectful of that. A super, even though she had all these sort of old school ideas, she was a total feminist. She, when she found out that she was getting paid less then her male counterparts, she went straight to the dean and you know demanded that she get paid what other what men were getting paid, and, and she did. She single-handedly um, she um, integrated, if you will, the 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 faculty lunchroom where women were not allowed, 
And she mm. said, fuck that. We're, I'm going in with her. Um, <laughs> going into, going the, faculty into the faculty lounge, lounge where I work. And she was, um, you know, she never had children, which she found really sad, but um, she loved children. She delighted in them. And she was very real about the way that she talked about the women that she studied. She had real relationships with them. And, um, and they loved her. She was so attentive. You know, that was one of, that's one of the things that has been really delightful for me studying her and, and reading about her studying these women and my fantasy of having been one of those women to be just, you know, in the, in the delight of her view to have been one of those people who was being watched and observed by her, her, her loving gaze. I, that's been really important to me. And she loved to party. She, she smoked, she drank, she danced. She smoked Benson. She liked she smoked Benson. She liked Benson, smoked and, Benson and, and bourbon. Yeah. yeah, bourbon, yeah. She would right. stay up. One of my favorite quotes is one of her um, executor and her protege, Bob Marvin. I went, I visited him and we're in very close touch. And he said, um, Mary could stay up and talk about attachment till 3 a.m. And that's how I feel. You know, I wish that I could sit up till 3 a.m. and talk about attachment with Mary. And I don't smoke anymore, but I'd love to have smoked with her. And I could definitely drink some bourbon and roast a chicken and just hang out and talk about this stuff. She, you know, never ended. Well, I think that thanks to your book, all of us can actually have the experience of hanging out with Mary Ainsworth, who, I mean, the way I think about her is just like, she was one of the great adventurers of the 20th century. You know, she charted a course for women. She charted a course for children. She charted a course for all of us to understand ourselves. She changed psychology. She was like the Amelia Earhart of social science, right? She was just, she was like, that's it. I'm doing this. I'm crossing the Atlantic in my plane and I'm going to change the way we think about motherhood, parenthood, children, ourselves. Um, Really just such an incredible person. And Bethany, you brought Mary Ainsworth to life for me and the vitality and importance of this research, like nobody else um, could have done. So tell me how people, t- uh, the name of the book, everybody is strange situation. And if you're listening to this podcast, it means that strange situation is available. Now you can order it from your indie bookstore where you can probably arrange a safe pickup or drop off. Um, it's also available on Amazon. Um, and Bethany tell people how and where they can find you. Um, okay. So I have a, a website, uh, Bethany Saltman.com. Um, and there's no Z in my name. It's just S A L T M A N. And, um, yeah, all my, my, you can buy the book there as well. And the book is also available on audiobook. So that is the books are, might be a little bit slow in arrival when people order them, but the audiobook you can buy it and listen to it. And I narrated it twice. Actually, I did it once and then it didn't, there was a technical glitch. So I did it again. <laughs> Oh my God. Just yeah, like this interview. Now I feel like, now I feel it like it's something, something about, about me. you. It is definitely <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's something about me. Let's yeah. not overthink it. Let's just, you know, you guys, so you can find Bethany on Instagram. She's Bethany yes, underscore that Saltman. That's new for me. She's, she's on, yeah, she's, she's on Twitter as well. And you can get her audiobook yeah. right away. Um, Bethany, 
thank you so much for being here, for talking to us about Buddhism, Mary Ainsworth, attachment, relationships, sex, um, friendship. I'm so glad that we had this well, time Well, thank you, you, Wednesday, because actually you were very instrumental in me writing this book when we have we had lunch that day and I said I'm obsessed with Mary Ainsworth and you said oh you should write a book and call it strange situation <laughs> what are friends <laughs> so for? thank you uh thank you for writing it Bethany it's a gift everybody check out the book and check out Bethany Saltman on social media you won't be sorry and she will help you through many strange Indeed. situations Bethany, thank you so much. Super exciting news, you guys. I am hosting an all-women's retreat in Nosara, Costa Rica in May. I want you to go visit Revamp Retreats to get more information on that, but it's going to be absolutely amazing. It's in one of my favorite places in the world, Nosara, Costa Rica, and I'm hosting it with one of my best, best, best friends, Caitlin Howe. It's all about bringing a really cool group of girls together and women together to bond and share an amazing experience to grow and transform. And you know what? Have some fun while we're doing it. So check out Revamp Retreats and find out more information. Hope to see you there. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.